We've got a couple of questions from last week, quite a few. I'm going to motor through them. Um, there's some good questions here. The first is, what warnings does... Hang on, I'll click this one. Excellent, thank you. What warnings does the Bible give about dreams? Well, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the Bible speaks of times when God has spoken through dreams and... Uh, they can be quite you know, amazing times in communicating to people. But we also read in the Bible that dreams can be unreliable. Um, so in Jeremiah 23, there's talk of false dreams, as there is in Zechariah chapter 10. Uh, it may be that you feel like you've had an, a powerful experience from God through a dream. Uh, if that's the case, then it's important that you test what you've had in that dream against the Bible. Because the Bible's not going to be sort of like you know, uncertain about what God is saying, but your dream might be. Uh, God uses dreams powerfully in different ways. Uh, in fact, only in the last couple of days, uh, I'm happy to report, that our missionary connection overseas, Jo, uh, she said that there are a bunch of ladies that she's meeting with from uh, who have a Muslim background, and a number of them have had dreams in which they've, they've been led to want to investigate Jesus. So it's interesting, isn't it, that in some other cultures it may well be that God uses dreams more than even in our own. However, as I said here, we need to match the dreams up against the Bible. Question two, how does God look down on everybody at the same time? I don't really know, and it's hard to get our heads around it. Uh, if you've ever been in a room when one or two people at the same time ask Siri something and she says what the answer is... Um, uh, it might be a little bit like that, except if you can imagine Siri actually being able to have a meaningful personal conversation with everybody at the same time. It's hard to get our heads around. I don't know how God does it, but he does. Question three. Is it God's job to love us? Well, not specifically. God's main job is to bring glory to himself. Um, if I said to you that my main job in life was to bring glory to myself, uh, you probably be a little bit worried about me, and rightly so. <laughs> uh, God is the only person in the universe who should be trying to bring glory to himself because he's at the centre of the universe. So why should he be different? Because if he brings glory to somebody else, that's idolatry, and you don't want God to be committing idolatry. So his main job is to love himself and bring glory to himself. But as we've seen in the last two weeks as we've looked at John chapter 17, that as God brings glory to himself, as the Son brings glory to the Father and the Father brings glory to the Son, we are the byproduct of that. And our salvation is swept up in that. And so, in a sense, as God is focused on glorifying himself, we get the salvation that comes from him doing that glorifying. Question four. How did Jesus act under authority when he is the Father? Well, Jesus is actually not the Father, he's the Son. Now, I've got to say that sometimes when I'm praying, I'll occasionally say, Dear Father, thank you for dying on the cross, or things like that. You know, and I've you know, spent a little bit of time in Bible college and shouldn't make that mistake, but it happens, and that's okay. But we, we need to see that, that God the Father is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. And so the reason that Jesus can act under the authority of the Father is because he's actually not the Father. He's the Son. Question five. Uh, do we believe that holy water will protect us from sickness? I'm not exactly sure what the holy water is that's described in this question. Uh, it might be the water that is used when we baptise somebody. Um, to be honest, when I get 
water to baptise somebody, I go out to the tap down there and just put some water in it. Okay, so it's just good old Jamboree Sydney water. There's nothing holy about it. Um, even if you were to grab some water from the Jordan River, you know, when, when Mandy and I were over there last year, you could buy bottles of Jordan River water. It's kind of like as though it was a special sort of thing. Uh, it's just water, probably a bit stinkier than Sydney water. And um, water, in that sense, doesn't have any special powers. Uh, God doesn't work through water in that particular way. In baptism, however, what we have is a sign of what has happened on the inside. And that is that when you trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you are cleansed before God. And the water is a way of showing that. Question six. If your relative goes to hell, then will you feel sad? I think this question is asked in response to last week's answer, which is about what it would be like if you went to heaven and realised that one of your relatives was not there and that they had gone to hell. Would you feel sad. Well, as I said last week, uh, you won't feel sadness in heaven because we're told very clearly that there'll be no sadness, no tears, no more crying, no mourning and so forth. And so that just won't be a reality to us. But what if this question is actually saying that this side of heaven, if you know that there's a relative who goes to hell, will you feel sad? Well, I suspect you, you will feel sad. But let me give you a little word of comfort. We, we actually do not know for certain whether a person has gone to heaven or to hell other than it's a thing between them and God. And so uh, if a person maybe has gone through their entire life rejecting Jesus and then maybe at the last minute they say, you know, I think that was a really dumb decision. I want to follow Jesus. Then he will say, you are with me in paradise. And if you're with us at church yesterday at Luke 23, uh, you'll see that that's exactly what happened to one of the criminals on the cross. So we don't know exactly for sure what will happen to a person uh, personally between them and God. However, if they get to the point of death and they have rejected Jesus all the way, then they will be in hell. And that is a, that is a reality that we, we must face and so must they. Question seven, why didn't Jesus tell Judas not to betray him? I don't know. But we do know that Jesus knew that this was definitely going to happen. Jesus made it clear in his prayer that we've been looking at that this is the way that, Jesus, that, that Judas, in fact, had gone through life and it would seem throughout his entire life, even though he'd been hanging out with Jesus, he had not fully trusted in Jesus. And because of that, he loved money or something more than Jesus and that led him to go and betray Jesus. Question eight. Should we forgive Judas for his treachery? Well, according to the Bible, we do read that Judas was full of remorse for having betrayed Jesus. But the Bible also makes it clear to us that he went to hell. Uh, he has betrayed the Son of God and has been punished eternally for that. Uh, even though he was full of remorse, he didn't come back to Jesus and he wasn't there at the foot of the cross saying, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Because if he was, then you could think that in that parallel universe that, that he would have been forgiven. But instead, he decided to take his own life. Um, I, give, I think that given that he is under God's right anger for his act of betraying Jesus, then I don't think we should feel the need to forgive Judas because he hasn't said sorry to us and nor has he, had any, uh, uh, nor has he said sorry to, uh, to God. We, we should have love for our enemies, of course, uh, but we don't have the job of going around and forgiving people who didn't wrong us in the first place and haven't sought peace with us. Uh, finally, this is an interesting question for you, 
would you agree with Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, who, a statement, who said, even God didn't create a perfect world, even God couldn't cope with this society. I don't think that was his plan. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, was the last ever leader of the Soviet Union. Uh, if you're my age or a little bit older or a fraction younger, you'll remember him. Uh, everybody else is like, who is he? You'll learn about him in history sometime. Um, it was really interesting as I did some research for this that it seems that good old Ronald Reagan may well have even been trying to convert Mikhail Gorbachev to become a Christian. If you sort of follow that, that story, it's quite interesting. But what about what Mikhail Gorbachev said? Um, I agree that God did not create a perfect world. Uh, it was a sinless world, but not a perfect world. What's the difference? Well, the world was always destined to fall under the weight of sin so that it would always be the case that Jesus would die and would rise again. Now, that's a kind of a, a weird way to think of things. But if the greatest moment in history is the death of Jesus, as we believe it is in the Bible, then a world that didn't need Jesus to die would not be as good as a world that had Jesus die. Does that make sense? I mean, it's kind of a bit hard to get our heads around. The word perfect uh, has in its idea... The, the, the notion of sort of completion, perfected. And so the world is not perfected even in the opening chapter of Genesis. It is only perfected when Jesus returns and we see the events of Revelation as we, we see the, the masses gathered around the throne worshipping the Lamb. Because there is the end point where there is the, the death of Jesus and the Lamb that was slain upon the throne. That is the moment of perfection. Uh, what about his phrase here that he says that, um, he, uh, that God couldn't cope with anything because, well, I couldn't cope with this society. I think God could cope with this society. And it was indeed his plan to create a world that was, in, that, in this sense, sinless but not perfect, so that it might be perfect through the death of Jesus. 